Hey guys, welcome back to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall. And today I have the pleasure of interviewing Eric Trexler once again. This guy is just full of knowledge and I thought he would be the ideal candidate for answering a question that I think we've all had, but I've never seen explained very well. And that is the question of how fast can we lose body fat without risking muscle loss? Because that's what we wanna do. We wanna lose body fat, not just weight. If we're losing weight, we could be losing muscle mass and trying to look better, fitter, healthier. Losing muscle mass is not the goal, especially if you're a bodybuilder, competitive bodybuilder trying to get to stage. How can we set ourselves best up for not risking the loss of muscle mass? As you might expect, there isn't a simple one-worded answer for this. It's quite a nuanced, complex discussion, and we delve into all of that. What literature do we have to support our understandings of this? And then what other things can we pull on to understand muscle protein breakdown, muscle protein synthesis, and how we might want to approach our fat loss endeavors? We dig into all of that. And guys, as a nice little reminder, here at Revive Stronger, we are an online coaching company. That's what we do for our living. That's what I spend most of my time doing. And we help people with the goal of fat loss, muscle preservation, getting to stage, doing a photo shoot, or just general fat loss and fitness, uh, muscle gain, all that good stuff and we really pride ourselves on having a very personalized approach where we have weekly check-ins with our clients we have true conversations through video diaries and we get really good results that way and so if you're interested in that if you'd be interested in finding out more about our coaching definitely check out the link in the description or the bio wherever it may be you'll be able to find it over on our website and you might be able to get a consultation with us and we can talk you through the process but without further ado let's get into the chat with eric So Eric, one of the largest concerns bodybuilders have when they're dieting is the risk of muscle loss. And I name bodybuilders, they don't have to be competitive. They can be anyone that's kind of into the gym, looking to grow muscle, be lean, that sort of thing. Because people have worked really hard for that and they don't want to risk losing it. Obviously, as we know, there's even data supporting that muscle loss isn't a huge risk for everyone. Even some people grow muscle during diet phases. So it's not like a simple answer that you can just give to everyone. It's quite a nuanced discussion. And I thought you, Eric, would be one of the best people to dive into this question of. And I think the question of kind of how fast can we diet and not risk muscle loss is one that is going to serve a lot of people. But I don't think it's, like I said, I don't think it's a simple one. I think there's lots of layers to it. Uh, but this is the sort of question that I just think you do a great job of diving into each of those layers and just like laying the land to everyone. Um, but without kind of speaking in black and white terms where people are just like, oh yeah, there's the rule Eric's given me. I can just diet on a don't know, thousand calorie deficit, no risk of muscle loss or something like this. So thanks for being here today. And I just want to kind of, like I said, off air, I don't know where you want to start, but I have a feeling you have kind of uh, some way of the, you want to dissect this question. Sure. Yeah. Uh, thanks for having me on again. This uh, may be the 20th time. No, probably, I don't know how many at this point. I should but, have counted uh, up, you know. <laughs> yeah, great Great <laughs> to be lot. here. Always happy to be here. Love coming on the show. And uh, yeah, so this is a question that um, comes up all the time. Uh, and I'm actually writing an article right now um, uh, kind of about a similar question just because I get it so much. And I like to be you know, you could call it efficient, you could call it lazy, whatever. If I get a question more than a few times, I usually say, okay, I need to write the article. And that way, 
the next 30 times I get it, I can refer people to that and actually provide a satisfactory answer uh, without having to create a brand new one every single time. So this has been on my mind a lot lately. And it's like you said, there's a lot of nuance and complexity to it. And I like to kind of use the kind of inverse scenario to kind of reiterate some of that complexity. So if someone comes to you, Steve, you're an excellent coach, you're a very experienced coach, you know things, you've seen people um, begin and achieve various fitness goals. But if someone comes to you and maybe they're relatively new beginner, you know, maybe just getting into that intermediate stage and they say, Steve, uh, how long will it take for me to gain, uh, you know, three kilos of muscle? I mean, you don't know, right? You don't know their general response to training. You don't, you'd have to ask a lot of questions about their training history, not just broadly, but also within the last like three months and the last six months, where's our starting point here? Um, but yeah, you don't know their general response to training. You don't have a really great idea of their training history. Even if you did, you'd have to dig into the details of how much actual volume have you been doing for each muscle group over the last three to six months. Um, you know, and, and then you'd have to, you know, just because you have a decent idea of their historical rate of progress doesn't mean you can necessarily forecast the next six months with a high level of certainty. And when you give them their first program, you don't really know if you're going to be dialing up a program that's really well tailored to the way they respond to training. So even if they broadly have a good training response, when you look at the literature comparing, you know, for example, high volume versus higher intensity programs, some people have very divergent responses, it would appear, um, where some people, they really grow more when when the intensity seems to be a little bit higher and other people, it's the opposite. So all of that is to say, if someone says, you know, uh, how long will it take me to gain X amount of muscle or, you know, um, any time that you're kind of ascribing uh, some time uh, outcome related to a change in lean mass, it gets really hard or, you know, how fast can I gain weight while being certain that a huge percentage of it is going to be muscle? Again, it's, it's kind of a different look at, at, at a similar type of question. So when we flip that and we're looking at losing weight uh, and trying to maintain muscle mass, you know, how much will be lost and over what duration and you know, how fast is too fast, we run into a similar collection of problems where there's a lot of variables in the mix. And um, whenever that happens, when I when someone asks me a question and I have to give this like two minute intro to why it's complicated, I usually say, let's ask better questions. And I don't phrase it that way because it makes it sound like that's a stupid question. It's not a stupid question. It's a great question, but it's complicated. And so as a scientist uh, who designs studies and runs studies and does statistical analyses, the more you do that, the more you start to realize big, broad questions that are difficult to really nail down the details, they don't make for a good research question. And therefore, they don't make for a good hypothesis or a good conclusion, really. It's, there's so much, uh, there are so many different layers, there's so much ambiguity, there's so much complexity that you have to say, like, as a researcher, when you want to know the answer to this big, bloated, multifaceted question, you have to challenge yourself, ask better questions, boil things down to their essential elements that are actually testable. Um, you know, the, that's kind of the, the, the key word in science is not just do you have a hypothesis, but do you have a testable hypothesis or a testable question? So usually what I try to do in this scenario is break it down into some, some smaller components. Um, so for example, 
one thing that's important for answering this question is generally speaking, uh, when people diet, uh, how much, you know, what proportion of the weight lost is actually lean mass or muscle mass? You know, I, I think that's an important uh, thing to look at. A second layer that you can look at is what can we do to maybe change that, you know, to alter the proportion of weight that is lost as lean mass or muscle mass? How can we lose more fat and less muscle per kilogram of weight lost? Uh, so, you know, what's the norm? How do we impact that? To what extent, you know, what's the magnitude and the consistency of that impact? Um, and then what are the characteristics of the individual that help us kind of tailor or refine our estimate to that person? So to me, those are kind of the critical layers that you want to unravel there. And for each individual person, you end up getting a very different answer, if that makes sense. So um, I think a, probably a good place to start is with a very recent paper that I, I reviewed in the Mass Research Review literally last month. So it came out 15 days ago. And the title of my article was how much muscle is typically lost during weight loss. And that's actually like a pretty big title. And I think it doesn't seem that way. So the reason I say that is there have been many papers that have said, hey, how much lean mass is lost during weight loss or how much fat free mass is lost during weight loss. And so people in our area often use the terms interchangeably and Sometimes I do, you know, sometimes it's it's just, you know, a, a convenient way to kind of carry a conversation forward without getting totally bogged down in details. But um, it's actually a pretty big deal to see some research looking at how much muscle mass is typically lost during weight loss rather than lean mass or fat-free mass. When you look at research on body composition and weight loss, you know, you have to think, okay, how is body composition actually being measured here? You know, if you're looking at something like DEXA or BODPOD, which are, you know, these are expensive pieces of, quip, of equipment. They are uh, pretty good at doing what they do. They're not perfect, but they're pretty good. Um, you know, so it, it's not like we're just like going at them with some calipers and a tape measure and hoping for the best. Um, but nonetheless, when we're using these types of methods, we don't have a great idea of how much actual muscle tissue is being lost. Um, you know, we've got uh, you know, probably the, the the most glaring thing that that you have to think about with those is, you know, with with bod pod, you're typically breaking the body down into fat mass and fat free mass. What is fat free mass? Well, it's everything that's not fat, right? So we're we're talking about the lean tissues that make up organs. We're talking about muscle, certainly. We're talking about um, you know body water, you know bone. There's a lot of stuff in there that's not fat. So it's difficult to say how much is muscle. Now, luckily, we're not losing like several kilograms of bone when we go on a diet. Uh, but but still, there's a lot of stuff in there that can fluctuate and kind of uh, muddy the waters. Now, with DEXA, we usually break things down into fat mass and bone mass and uh, lean soft tissue. And so that's a little bit closer, but you still, I mean, you'll notice I didn't say water anywhere. We have to make assumptions about where water is being distributed and lean soft tissue still includes a lot of stuff that isn't muscle. So um, all of that is to say, to have a study that actually looked at muscle itself is a pretty big deal and a pretty valuable thing. So before reading this study, uh, which was by Hamesfield and colleagues, and uh, 
my the lab I did my PhD in, we we did a lot of like methodology research on body composition measurement. And if you've read any of those papers, you know Hamesfield is a big deal. Uh, he he's like one of the huge names in body composition assessment. Uh, so I already knew this this was going to be a good one. Um, but before I read this paper, I, I had a pretty good understanding that the the heuristic, the kind of general normal number you hear in the fitness world is, you know, if you lose a pound of weight, about three quarters of that is going to be fat and a quarter of it is going to be lean mass. Although people usually say muscle, but but they mean lean mass there. Um, but this paper was cool because it was a, a collaboration between a bunch of like heavy hitters in the body comp research. And they kind of noticed like, hey, we've all got this data sitting around where we actually calculated like really meticulously changes in body composition in a large number of people who were dieting and we used MRI to do it. And so the cool thing about MRI is, you know, you can use MRI to get highly precise images of just about anything you need in the body. It's, it's a, an extremely powerful diagnostic tool. And, uh, Unfortunately, I, I know that firsthand. I did um, during my PhD. I did uh, uh, a lab rotation with uh, someone over in the physics department. Actually, uh, so we did a little project, and that physicist, their all of their research, like, was on how MRI actually works. Like, hmm. they're the type of person who would actually innovate the design of an MRI and kind of take its precision to the next level. Uh, so she was brilliant, like so brilliant. You, you couldn't really talk to her if you were as dumb as me. You know, you just kind of went along for the ride. But um, but yeah, I, I've done the projects where I'm sitting in there and with MRI, it's a three dimensional um, uh, scan of the body. And so what that means is, you know, you're looking at a computer screen. You could look at a cross section of a tissue, you know, maybe a, a thigh or whatever. And so you're seeing this two dimensional image. So how do you do a 3D analysis? Well, you go slice by slice by slice by slice. And it is so terrible. <laughs> it's just absolutely unbearably tedious. So uh, props to people who do MRI for body comp because uh, it's necessary to look at changes in organ mass and things like that. Uh, so the, the information you get from it is tremendous, but the effort and time input when you compare it to something like DEXA is mm -hmm. not even not even comparable, just a completely different thing. But anyway, they had this big set of data and and uh, long story short, they wanted to figure out how much muscle is actually being lost when people do these diets. And they were losing in these studies, um, you know, pretty considerable, eh, you know, decent amounts of weight. Right. So we're talking about broadly speaking, about 10 kilograms. Right. So that'd be about 22 pounds. Um, and that's a range, you know, in some subgroups, they were losing eight and some they were losing 13 kilograms. Um, but what was cool was they included data from a short term study, which was like 12 to 14 weeks. And another study was actually a 12 month protocol. So we're looking at both short term and long term, all kind of lumped into this data set. And what they found was that males typically lose, you know, for, for every pound of, of weight that they lose, about 20 to 25% tends to be muscle. So that's not lean mass, that's actual muscle that's being lost. And for female participants in these studies, they found that um, females tended to lose uh, 10 to 15% of their weight as lean mass, or I'm sorry, as muscle. See, even I did it there. <laughs> so, um, so that's really, really interesting to see. And they, they also noticed that 
um, within males, that percentage actually tended to be higher uh, if memory serves among younger men. And I think the idea there, you know, when we're seeing that we don't see as much uh, muscle loss, relatively speaking, when we're looking at females or we're looking at older males, it's probably telling us that a big factor there is just baseline muscle mass, right? So at baseline, you know, a younger male typically has more to lose. And therefore, it, I think it's relatively intuitive to understand how they would have a higher percentage of muscle loss. Um, so that's a really cool finding. It's really great. And you know, now we have our number and that makes everything easy. But then you remember all that complexity stuff. So this study, uh, both of the studies that were used here featured participants who were not doing a structured exercise program, certainly not doing a structured resistance training program. Um, and generally speaking, these were uh, folks with overweight or obesity, right? So this is not your typical lifter who's cutting from 15% body fat to 8% body fat, which is, you know, a huge percentage of our industry, right? Is, is people kind of in that boat. Um, and, and so that means that we have to kind of lean on other research that's perhaps a little bit more applicable to our use case or our scenario. And uh, that, that brings me to the meta regression that I know you've read, Steve, by Murphy and colleagues. So um, I don't want to, you know, hog the microphone here. If, if I can keep going if you'd like, but, but also I can uh, shut up and take some questions or, or expand upon that first paper if you'd like. No, I think it's, it's really great because it just goes, again, uh, uh, an important part of science and papers is the people that it's done on. So like, hey, these are people who are obese. They're not resistance training. I imagine also they're not having a high protein diet. And like, these are all variables that then have a, a play into things. I also liked how you kind of framed it. Like, I guess another question that we maybe can cover at another point that people often ask is like, hey, when I'm in a gaining phase, how much of that percentage or how much am I gaining like muscle mass versus fat tissue is another one of those. It's a similar scenario here where it's like, ah, there's lots of nuance to that, lots of dependables. Uh, and like the question that I gave and the question that we're looking to dissect is so broad. Like it's, you need yeah. almost like one individual in their specific context to kind of start to understand what that like might likely look like for them it's exactly like you said at the start i work with a client we kind of set up with a good baseline but i can't predict how things are going to six months down the line you're kind of trying yeah. to do your best guesses yeah yeah so um moving on let's let's introduce resistance training right so um I, you know I, I mentioned previously when you start boiling this down the first question is how much as a baseline how much muscle loss do we expect right when we're dieting, that, that's kind of the key fundamental element if we're trying to see how fast can you diet without losing muscle or without losing a meaningful amount of muscle. Um, so we've got that figured out, but I also mentioned we have to think about, well, what, what strategies can actually change that ratio, can actually attenuate that loss of lean mass? And of course, the biggest one by far, it's not close, is gonna be resistance training, right? Now, there are other things you could layer in there. You could say resistance training is by far massively the biggest factor and then on top of that the two other factors that are also meaningfully important would be um, uh, protein intake and also just the size of your caloric deficit right and so this meta regression by murphy and colleagues doesn't tell us too much about protein just because of the way studies were selected and the analysis was done 
but it does tell us a lot about those other factors. So resistance training and uh, the rate of weight loss or the magnitude of the caloric deficit. And those are two different ways of saying the same thing, right? The, the larger your deficit, you play that out over time. We're talking about a faster rate of weight loss. And so they, they had a couple cool analyses in this, uh, this meta-analysis, this meta-regression by Murphy and colleagues, which came out in 2021. Uh, the first one, uh, they made some waterfall plots where they basically say in all these different studies, we're going to plot each one as a little bar on a bar graph, line them up in order and just say, you know, in this study, how much lean mass was actually lost among people who were um, training, you know, doing resistance training with an energy deficit versus without an energy deficit. So they were just kind of saying the fact that you are lifting and trying to lose weight at the same time. How does that impact your ability to gain lean mass, which is kind of tangentially uh, related to our question at hand here? And so uh, the waterfall plot, I think, was pretty striking. When you look at strength, um, not not really much going on there in terms of the energy deficit. It didn't really um, have a huge impact on strength gains in these resistance training studies. Um, and that I think that's pretty intuitive. Um, you know, if, if you ask yourself, OK, I'm going to do a fairly sustainable 12 week diet. I'm not like shredded. I'm not trying to get shredded. You know, um, can I continue to progress in the gym uh, in terms of my, my strength numbers, especially if I'm like kind of a beginner? I think most people would say, yeah, that, that makes sense. A deficit is not going to crush your ability to kind of, you know, get your feet underneath you as a lifter and, and figure out how to do these movements and build a little strength. Um, but when it comes to lean mass, uh, the, the story was quite different. So you look at these resistance training studies where people were not training in a deficit and you see that changes in lean mass um, pretty much, I think, in all cases were on the positive side of the graph. Right. So um, some people barely gain lean mass, which not ideal, but um, but everyone was either like right at zero or gaining, uh, you know, some amount of lean mass. When you looked at the studies where people were training in an energy deficit, this get, kind of gets at our question of okay, I'm losing weight and I'm lifting. Now, what do I expect? Um, unfortunately, you know, it looks like just by eyeballing it, you know, somewhere between two thirds and three and three quarters of those studies actually reported an average loss of lean mass. Um, but there's still a handful of studies in there, you know, maybe about a quarter, give or take, that are indicating increases in lean mass, despite the fact that people were training in an energy deficit. So that alone tells us, you know, Without resistance training, if we're in an energy deficit, we're losing weight, we can probably expect on average, you know, males losing 20 to 25% of their weight as muscle, females 10 to 15% as muscle. Now, when we look at lean mass, but we add training into the mix, now we actually see a scenario where that's being attenuated. In some cases, people are actually gaining lean mass in a deficit. So that's actually a pretty huge deal. And when people come to me and they say, um, you know, how, you know, what percentage of the weight I lose here is going to be lean mass? Sometimes I'll take it back a second and say, are you sure you're going to be losing lean mass? Um, and, and that really can be a big perspective changer. And I think that's important on the coaching side, on the kind of psychology side, when you, um, you know, it's, it's like an athlete going into practice and saying, how terrible is this going to be? And say, well, what if we actually have a great time and it turns out to be a very productive practice? Like, can we at least be open to that possibility and leave it on the table? You know, 
So uh, sometimes people say, you know, how bad is this going to get for muscle loss? And I'll say, well, what if you gain muscle? And, and I think that really pulls the conversation in a very different direction. And so instead of operating on a scale of very bad to terrible, yeah. we're now operating on a scale of terrible to maybe actually good. And so so now we, we kind of shift our way over to, to uh, a bit of a more optimistic conversation that can really um, make a big difference psychologically. But I think in this meta analysis, Steve, the thing that really was fantastic was they didn't stop there. They didn't just say like, hey, let's look at all these different individual studies, deficit versus no deficit. They also said, well, maybe the size of the energy deficit matters, right? And so they plotted that out and did a meta regression where they looked at the change in lean mass on the y-axis. And then on the x-axis, they were looking at the size of the energy deficit in calories per day. Uh, and so what they found was, generally speaking, uh, the larger the deficit, the more likely that people were to experience reductions in lean mass or to be unable to gain lean mass uh, during those interventions. And, you know, you could look at the at the graph a couple different ways. Um, I think the number that they they, they kind of gave a threshold there where they said um, that uh, a deficit of about 500 calories a day was predicted to fully blunt uh, gains in lean mass. And uh, and, you know, the 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 graph seems to generally support that. But it's also important to realize that that's a level of precision that's not really warranted, right? So you could say 500 is that threshold, but then you'd want to say, okay, but what, what's our confidence interval around that? You know, and it's certainly not 498 to 502 calories per day, right? It's, there's some wiggle room in there. And of course, it's going to depend on the context, you know, how much protein are you eating? How effective is your training program and things like that. So um, I, as much as I love numbers, uh, sometimes I'll read a study and I'll, I'll kind of cut, like I covered this one in, in the mass research review, cause I thought it was a great study. I thought it was important, but I also wanted to get out ahead of that messaging before it kind of really, you know, caught a hold of the fitness industry and say, Hey, let's take that 500 number seriously, but not literally. Uh, and the reason I say that is we have to consider how precise could this estimate truly be in reality when we're comparing studies with dramatically different training programs with slightly different populations in some cases uh, you know not um, put giving the same exact amount of protein across all these studies we have to really take that with a grain of salt but the proof of principle here is that larger energy deficits broadly speaking are predictive of uh, greater losses in lean mass while dieting and so you know, that's great to see. And I think when we, you know, some people will say, yeah, meta regressions, meta analyses, their, their upside, the benefit there, the advantage is that you have the ability to look at a bunch of different studies, right? And that's cool. You know, you can kind of pull these things together and try to start separating the signal from the noise, but there's noise in a meta analysis. There's a great deal of it because of all those things I just said, you you have peop, uh, cohorts with different ages and some are more trained than others at baseline and different protein intake. There's a lot to sort through there. So some people, you know, when they talk about this, um, this kind of hierarchy of evidence, people will say, oh, definitely meta-analysis, meta-regression, firmly at the top of this hierarchy of evidence. Other folks will say, actually, I prefer uh, a really well-designed randomized controlled trial. 
where we actually are manipulating those things instead of ignoring them or trying to kind of smooth them out after the fact with statistical adjustment. Um, but fortunately, uh, you know, what, what they found in this meta regression seems to be broadly supported by uh, randomized controlled trials on this subject. Um, surprisingly, there's not a great deal of research addressing this question head on in lifters, you know, especially in well-trained lifters, which, you know, you would think that that work would be done because it's such a prevalent question and it seems to be pretty low-hanging fruit in terms of how you would design that study. It's one of those things where you're like, this isn't conceptually hard to put together. Um, in terms of resources, it shouldn't be too different than your typical training study. Um, but for whatever reason, that that work hasn't really been done at a, at a, a at a high volume. There's a, a couple studies here and there, but those studies do broadly seem to indicate that rate of weight loss matters. Um, and and that, that gets to the root of the, this question that we're, we're, that we're answering here. You know, how fast can I go without losing muscle? Without question, there is that relationship between speed or rate of weight loss and the likelihood of losing muscle. Um, so like I said, it's not a dumb question but it's a hard question to answer. And so therefore it helps to kind of break it down into its essential elements. Um, so, you know, you could look at this meta regression and say, okay, 500 calories a day. Um, let's say that that's where you want to cap your deficit. Um, so, you know, I know people argue about this all day, but we'll say, okay, we'll call that about uh, a pound a week, you know, and, and you can get into much more nuanced calculations of exactly what a 500 calorie per day deficit ought to predict but okay let's call it a pound of weight loss a week um you know so what is that half a percentage of body weight per week if you start at 200 pounds is that right i think so yeah. and then one percent of body weight per week if you start at 100 pounds um now if you talk to all the nerds and evidence-based fitness and they say hey how fast should i go they'll probably typically say eh, you know half a percent of body weight per week, maybe up to 1% if you're really in a hurry. So yeah, it kind of works out pretty good actually to, to suggest like 500 calories is about, you know, where you might consider capping that. Um, so this is one of those uh, really nice scenarios where, um, you know, th that number, it, it was evidence-based, evidence-related, but not empirically derived, right? Like yeah. the idea that that's a good rate of weight loss, it's, it's not like there was this massive empirical effort to precisely identify that value. Um, but, but that is a range that's been popularized and a range that, um, you know, I, I know I, I've kind of thrown that out there in the past a lot when it comes to rate of weight loss. Um, now, of course, there, there's some caveats there. So if we want to say, Okay, 500 calorie per day deficit is probably where you want to where you want to leave it, you know, as kind of the upper end there. And so we're talking about, you know, depending on your body mass, you know, we'll call it, you know, maybe a half a percent of body weight per week or, or 0.75%, you know, something like that. Um, that doesn't really work across all, uh, you know, the entire spectrum of people who are contacting Steve Hall to get coached, right? Um, and maybe if you kind of carve out a really specific niche and you say, hey, I help, uh, you know, young male bodybuilders, you know, who are natural and fit within this particular, you know, you can kind of predict what that level of muscularity is going to be intermediate male aspiring bodybuilders in their 20s and 30s. You, you get an idea of what their body weight is going to be at baseline, what their general uh, body composition might be. Um, but, you know, there's people out there who. Um, 
you know, coach general population clients who, who uh, really are adamant that they, they want to maintain their strength and their muscle. You might have a client who's starting out at 300 pounds. You might have a client who's starting out at 115 pounds, right? Um, and so percent of body weight can be a tough way to do that sometimes because you might find that um, even 1% of body weight when you start getting, uh, you know, well above 200 pounds, it's kind of tough to lose more than, than a couple pounds per week just because the daily deficit have, has to get so big. Um, you know, it, I mean, it, it, not just the daily deficit necessarily, but just the, um, it, it feels kind of weird to give a really low calorie number to somebody who's used to eating way, way more than that. And who's like, yeah, that this doesn't make sense for someone my size, you know, to, to be eating this tiny, tiny amount of calories. So you do run into practical constraints where at a certain point, 1% of body mass, if you're using that as your upper range actually becomes like quite a few pounds per week. Um, you know, you, you start getting up into like three pounds per week, that, that can get pretty tricky, um, just in a practical sense. And then at the same time, at the lower end of that range, uh, you might find folks who are, you know, um, <laughs> who are really, really low in body weight and, and they still want to pursue a weight loss goal. And, and of course, you want to be careful about that, make sure that it's a, a healthy goal for them and that, that it's appropriate. Um, but nonetheless, you know, if, if you tell someone who's 115 pounds, we're going to lose, you know, a quarter of a percentage of your body weight per week. I mean, you're, you're not getting anywhere particularly quickly. Right. Um, and, and then, you know, same thing if you're starting out at 140 pounds, right. And maybe you want to get down to 110. It's going to take a long time, you know, if you're staying down at these kind of lower ends of, of these fractional ranges. So all of that is to say, I think it's valuable to have a, a decent heuristic here. And, and I think there's a couple ways you can frame it. And I think for most folks who are interested in attenuating the amount of lean mass that they're going to be losing or the amount of muscle mass they're going to be losing during a diet, there's some really basic uh, heuristics or tips or guidelines that we can give them, right? So perhaps you would say you don't want your daily deficit to be much more than 500 calories per day. Or you could say, we don't, we probably don't want to lose too much more than about half a percent of body weight per week. If we are just adamant that we want to do everything we can to prevent the loss of muscle tissue. Uh, sometimes it will make more sense to go a little bit quicker and say, well, okay, we're going to be, you know, we know we're going to be lifting, eating plenty of protein. Maybe we can go 1% of body weight per week, especially at the start when we have more body fat to lose we might be able to get away with that and really not regret going a little bit faster than, you know, a 500 calorie per day deficit or, a, you know, um, five, you know, half a percent of body weight per week. So there's some wiggle room there. And, uh, and, and that's kind of something I'll, I'll talk about the next thing, which is what are the characteristics of an individual that are going to reflect how we use these basic guidelines. But before I get there, the basic guidelines I'd say, you know, like I said, 500 calorie per day deficit is, is kind of a good, a, a decent kind of upper limit, half a percent of body weight per week, um, eating plenty of protein. So for some folks, you go 1.6 to 2.2 grams per kilogram of body mass. You might consider going even higher than that sometimes. Um, and so I prefer to frame protein relative to fat-free mass rather than total body mass, um, just because I think when you start getting into extremes of body composition, Framing to fat-free mass seems to be a little bit more appropriate from my perspective. And so from, for most folks, I'll say, you know, 2.0 to 2.75 
grams of protein per kilogram of fat-free mass per day. But, you know, Eric Helms, uh, one of my co-authors over there at Mass, I'm sure everyone's heard of him on the show, everyone who's listening, um, you know, he had a great systematic review back in the day suggesting maybe, maybe we even go up to like 3.1 uh, grams of protein per kilogram of fat-free mass. Now, um, that's probably one of the most misquoted guidelines in the history of evidence-based fitness because a lot of people, as, you know, it's a game of telephone when it goes from the research paper all the mm -hmm. way to the audience. And uh, in many cases, people misinterpret that as 3.1 grams per kilogram of total body mass, which is a very different um, recommendation. But keeping it to fat-free mass, I'd say, you know, 2.0 would be your low end. Um, and your high end could go all the way up to 3.1 grams per kilogram of fat-free mass. And again, I just want to reiterate, this is assuming that you are adamant that you really don't want to lose fat-free mass. If you're okay losing a little bit of fat-free mass, a little bit of muscle, then you have more wiggle room with, with some of these targets. Um, so yeah, I think uh, you want to make sure that your deficit is appropriate. You want to make sure your rate of weight loss is appropriate. You want to make sure your protein level uh, is high. And then finally, you want to make sure that you are on the best resistance training program you can put together. And my general um, inclination during weight loss is to assume that the best program for kind of maintaining muscle during a diet is probably not too dissimilar from the, did I say the best diet? The best training program to maintain muscle during weight loss is probably not too dissimilar from the best program to build muscle when you're in a bulking phase. You know, it, it's kind of keeping those main principles of putting together a good hypertrophy oriented program. Um, the only time that I kind of differ from that assumption or deviate from it is um, sometimes way, 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 way late in prep when people are just like perpetually glycogen depleted and it's a struggle and we're just trying to do what we can to maintain what we've got basically at the in those final stages sometimes my rep ranges do get a little bit lower because i'll just i'll look at someone and say hey i can tell you to do 12 reps but reps 7 through 12 are going to look terrible because i mean you you've got no glycogen left right um so there are certain points in a prep diet where i'll kind of deviate from that a little bit and say let's just try to get some tension on the muscle for for the duration that we can actually bear using the phosphocreatine energy system and let's hope for the best. But, uh, but yeah, those, those are my general heuristics. And then that kind of brings me to, to phase three of this conversation, which, uh, which is going to be, okay, now we know the kind of normal baseline guidelines, uh, but how do we tailor that to the individual? What are the characteristics we need to be looking at? So, uh, before I get into that, I will once again, pause and, and see if there's, uh, anything that we want to, elaborate on or any questions anything that we want to sort out do you not see the progress you would like are you sick of writing your own programs or perhaps you need some accountability in order to stick with the plan then it's time to start working with us. We at Revive Stronger offer a truly personalized coaching service. You'll get more than just an email with some macros or random cookie cutter program. With Revive Stronger, you will be the center of our attention. You will receive your own fully individualized training protocol alongside a customized nutritional strategy. We created the coaching around your needs, wants, personal preferences, and your own unique lifestyle. Every single week, we delve into your 
program in order to make appropriate adjustments so that we get the most out of your time and the best possible outcome. We help both female and male athletes to seriously change their body composition by adding more muscle mass and decreasing fat tissue. No matter if you're a competitive bodybuilder or just want to look better. If you need help with your progress and taking your physique to the next level, our coaching is for you. It's time to make a change. Sign up today and let's revive stronger. No, I think you you worked. I had questions, and then you worked through it, and I was like, oh, yes, this is this is great because it's like you said, the the five hundred calories does work well into what the general recommendation that we see people talk about that 0.5 to one percent. Which talking about Eric, that came I think largely from his evidence based recommendations for natural bodybuilders through like a contest prep, and that scaled like hey one percent at the start, like you said, when you got a bit more body fat to liberate, and then you can slow it down as you come towards the end there. Um, but it's funny because you talked through the difference between the calorie deficit size and also the percentage of the rate of loss. Because I've always preferred the percentage rate of loss for an individual because it's kind of like it's individualized by that individual whereas a 500 calorie deficit quite generic like you said for a 200 pound person it's like one pound to them is not that much whereas for a 100 pound person again it's it's a large amount so it's then like you said scaling with it's taking into consideration yeah 500 is like a general reference but then taking consideration what does that mean for how much they're losing if they're larger maybe you can go a bit bigger than that and again if they're on the slighter smaller side maybe a bit slower and then it sounds like you're going to come into Something that I have in mind uh, for like some of the individual uh, additional individual characteristics that would play into this as well. Yeah, yeah, and just to reiterate that, you know, when you're when you're kind of um, weighing your options of should I go with you know the daily deficit, um, just that that kind of absolute magnitude of 500 calories per day, or should I go as a percentage of of body weight? There's really no best way to do it, right? There's there's pros and cons, and you start to see that in various scenarios you say oh that one's way better than this one in this context so like i said i mean you might look at you know if you're working with general population folks um a lot of times those folks aren't going to be just like extremely adamant like i need to maintain every ounce of muscle. you know if, if you're talking with someone who weighs 340 pounds and their doctor said hey you need to lose some weight because we want to see glycemic control improving we want to see your blood lipid profile improving when you want to get your blood pressure down. Usually in that case, folks are going to say, okay, let's, let's lose weight at the, the maximal rate that's going to be sustainable for me. But like, you know, in the, the you know, theoretically, if you're approaching that, um, that situation and you're using these percentages, you'd say, oh, cool. Um, let, we're in a hurry. Let's do 1% of body weight per week. Well, if they're 340 pounds, you're talking about losing, you know, more than three pounds per week. Um, of of actual fat tissue once that initial kind of drop in water weight and gut content is is taken care of, um, and that just necessarily implies that you need to create a pretty big deficit on a daily basis, and it does start to kind of threaten sustainability at that point when uh, you know it, it feels really weird when you're giving a, a a really large person a recommendation saying hey here you go let's do twelve hundred calories per day at the beginning of the diet right because then you're like well where do we go from here. Uh, and and are we really sure that it's necessary to make such an extreme daily caloric deficit right out of the gates? You know, could that potentially backfire a little bit if we're if we're not leaving ourselves anywhere to go with the diet? And if we are, you know, getting really extreme really quickly, that that could be a potentially a demotivating factor. Um, so so there's a lot to uh, 
when, when you start to try to generalize these things to a variety of different scenarios, you, you run into unique complications at various ends of that spectrum, um, which I think is a great segue to this idea of, you know, the final piece is, okay, you're, you're, you're an individual and you're coming to me and you're saying, what's the fastest that I can lose weight uh, without losing muscle mass or fat-free mass? Um, like I said, the first, the first way I address that is I say, are you certain that, that we are necessarily going to be losing lean mass or fat-free mass? Um, in, in some cases, we might be able to say, okay, let's kind of estimate a deficit that we want to shoot for. Let's implement it and, uh, and let's lock that in for a minute because there are going to be some folks who are actually in a really great place um, and, and are really well suited for what we would call body recomposition or uh, basically building, gaining new muscle while they are losing fat, right? And so it is theoretically possible for someone who's recomping that uh, you put them in a caloric deficit um, and they are losing fat. Um, but they are simultaneously building muscle and you know every now and then it's it's not super common but sometimes in extreme instances of body recomposition you can literally visually watch someone getting leaner they are in a caloric deficit but their body weight's not changing much at all um and, and so that that can sometimes add a lot of confusion which is why i said you know if, if you suspect that someone is, is going to be really primed for recomposition probably best to kind of estimate that um that deficit and it's one of those rare cases where you're not just going to blindly adjust it based on the observed rate of weight loss. You, you have to actually visually kind of take a look and say, are we sure we're not in a deficit just because body weight isn't dropping? You know, so if you insist on a particular rate of weight loss for someone who's recomping, you're going to end up making a bigger deficit than you intended because you're not accounting for the gain of lean mass. And I know folks will hear that and say, well, no, if, if you're in a deficit, you're losing weight. Well, the, the tricky thing is that, you know, fat tissue and muscle tissue, uh, they're distinct tissues which have very different energy content per kilogram of tissue. And so what that means is, you know, if you lose a pound of fat and gain a pound of muscle just overnight, you snap your fingers and that happens, you lost energy from your body, right? Uh, when you replace a pound of fat with a pound of muscle, you're replacing a, a, a tissue with high energy density you're replacing it with a tissue with low energy density. So the net change in body energy is a, a, a drop. Um, and so that's where things get tricky. But with, with recomposition, kind of going back to the start here, a, a lot of folks will suggest that it's just not doable. Like, it, oh, yeah, theoretically that could happen, but it just doesn't, um, especially if you've been training for more than like two months, right? Like it, it, a lot of people really discount the plausibility that someone who maybe is an intermediate lifter is going to be doing any recomposition during a weight loss phase or a fat loss phase, I should say. Um, but there's a really great paper a couple of years ago by Chris Barakat and colleagues where they they said, okay, well, let's just look at the literature and see if we can identify, um, you know, group level body recomposition outside of those like really obvious scenarios, right? So when I say obvious, and this gets into some of the characteristics I was hinting at, Let's say you're starting a, a fat loss phase. You have a lot of fat to lose. You know, maybe you're 35, 40% body fat as a male and you are brand new to lifting. You know, you say, okay, I'm going to give this a shot. I'm happy to lift during the process, but I've really never done it before. Um, and you're going to take it nice and slow and do, you know, 
half a percent of body weight per week or maybe a 500 calorie per day deficit, someone in that scenario, the default assumption is they are going to achieve recomposition. Like they, they absolutely should be building muscle in the first few months there, um, you know, in, in the first six months, let's say, they should be gaining muscle uh, while they are losing fat. And I think pretty much everyone accepts that, right? So th that kind of tells us when we're trying to figure out, you know, what's the maximum rate of weight loss I can pursue without losing considerable amounts of, of muscle mass, starting body fat clearly is gonna be important uh, and training experience clearly is gonna be important. Those are really the two biggest things that are gonna differ on a person by person basis because I'm just gonna assume that you're already locked into uh, doing a, a really effective resistance training program and eating enough protein. You know, if we leave those as assumptions, the main factors we want to look at is how lean are you? How much weight do you have to lose? And, um, you know, what is your training status? But I think training status is one of those things that, that people tend to oversimplify a lot, right? So people will say, I'm an intermediate lifter. How do you know? Well, because I've been lifting for four years. You say, oh, so all four of those years you were on a really, really effective program. And, and so you've got four years of highly specific, optimized training under your belt. I'm like, no, for the first two years, I kind of messed around in the gym and did a bunch of stupid stuff. And then I found Steve Hall's podcast and I figured out how you're supposed to train. Um, and I've been doing that for about 18 months now, give or take. Um, but, you know, over the last few months, I've actually had a lot of travel. So um, haven't been hitting it super hard the last few weeks. When you start digging into training status, you, you realize it's like, it's kind of an arbitrary thing where someone would say, oh yeah, I, I'm definitely intermediate to advance. And it's like, right, but could, could we gain four pounds of muscle in the next six months based on those contextual factors? They'd go, oh yeah, for sure. So, so it kind of doesn't matter that you're, you know, intermediate to advance. If there's easy gains on the table for you right now, if we really optimize your training and nutrition, are you really all that dissimilar from a beginner in terms of this question? I, I would argue kind of, kind of not, right? I mean, so I, I think I'm probably the best example. I've been lifting uh, for 20 years. Uh, I started when I was 12. I've been strength coaching since 2009. Um, I've been, you know, studying exercise science since 2009. I've been doing research in the field since 2011. I know how to train, <laughs> okay? I, I should be quite advanced. You're maxed out. However, <laughs> what's that? You're maxed out quite clearly. <laughs> right. But According it's like, to that. Exactly. But, but I know for certain that my training the last, like, honestly, like four years has been crap because I've, I've had stuff going on. I've been busy. It hasn't been top priority. I've had a really tricky injury that's been very difficult to train around. My gym was closed for like a year and a half <laughs> with COVID. Like stuff happens. Like, so I should based on essentially any metric say, oh, I'm an advanced lifter. I guarantee if, if I quit my job and decided that, you know, building muscle was the most important thing in the world to me, I could easily add probably, I could probably slap 20 additional pounds of muscle on my frame from where I am right now. No, no question if you give me maybe a couple years, right? So, so what does advanced really mean? Not, not that much. And right now I'm honestly, just stringing together effective workouts for the first time in quite some quite some time, I'm I'm making beginner gains right now. I absolutely am. So um, that was a bit of a tangent, but it, it's something I feel really strongly about. On that tangent, Eric, do you have a preferred way of differentiating kind of 
beginner, intermediate, advanced, because I obviously, I, I've seen different things out there where it's like strength standards or time that you've been lifting. But I tend to look at it more on an individual basis of like how fast is that person pro- able to progress? How quickly are they hitting new PRs? And how hard do they have to try for those new PRs? So if I'm like, hey, if you're hitting weekly PRs, you're, you're a newbie and you're not having to try that hard. Intermediate is like, hey, if it's taking you like a couple of weeks, months to hit PRs and you're trying pretty hard, you're doing pretty good training, pretty good nutritional protocols. And then advanced is like, hey, you're doing well if you're hitting it every like few months, new PRs. Like it might take you multiple months to hit a new PR and you're really trying for that. And then you get the people who have been doing this for way too long and they're they're like every six months, (laughs) like they're they're hitting uh, new numbers there. I don't know if that's something you also align with or if you have a different way of differentiating between level of advancement. Yeah, I don't really have a well-defined heuristic or guideline uh, to kind of quote here, but I very much agree with you uh, in terms of just the general premise. I I think it absolutely is about what is your current rate of progress and what kind of gains are on the table for us? And like you said, how hard do we have to work for them, right? So, um, you know, for example, you you could be an advanced lifter, but there's plenty of advanced lifters out there walking around right now who, if they woke up tomorrow, with a hundred extra pounds on their squat, they wouldn't hit a PR. And that, that's a real thing because if you've been an advanced lifter for a while, it means that you've probably done highly specialized, uh, focused types of training and cycles of training. You know, there, there was a time in my career where I trained squatting 500 pounds was the only thing that mattered to me. So of course I, you know, ramped my squat up, but like, could we over the next six months, if if I didn't have this injury that prevents me from squatting, could we add 120 pounds to my squat in the next six months? A hundred percent, no question. So, um, so yeah, it really is about the, the most important thing, which is what kind of gains do we have access to in the next few months and how hard do we have to work to access those? And so I would say, even if you've been training for 15 years, you know, when you start to see the ebbs and flows of training over time, um, you know, like, like Helms is a great example. I, I saw he posted the other day where he was like talking about really cranking up his leg training. You know, he, he had a hip issue. He had to get bilateral hip surgery. And so, yeah, for like literally years, he, you know, his his leg training was was hampered. It was hindered by that. And so he feels like he has some serious leg gains on the table that are within reach. Now, he's an extremely advanced lifter. Um, so yeah, I've probably beaten that tangent to death here, but, but that, that is how I feel about it, which is that if, if I was going to work with a brand new client and try to assess what gains are accessible to us and how hard do we have to work, what I do is I have a conversation and I say two different time frames in the last three months and in the last six months, maybe, and perhaps we even take it back a year just for more context. What kind of training have we been doing? How have we been prioritizing training? Um, are we near your all time bests? You know, all of that, all of that information is going to help you understand, you know, if you're near all your all time PRs on just about everything and you tell me I've been going pedal to the metal full, full go for the last year straight and I just cannot find progress, you're advanced, you know, for, for all intents and purposes. And I look at your program and I say, this is a great program. There's enough volume. It's, you know, adequate intensity. You're advanced, right? But if I start looking through these details and I say, oh, so if we just kind of ramp up our effort and if we, you know, actually do a more suitable level of volume, we're, we're going to we're going to make gains in the next couple months. Right. Very, very different scenarios. So anyway, this paper by uh, Barricat and colleagues, they, they basically said, OK, let's actually look at studies, 
not on people who are dieting from 50% body fat to 35% body fat and have never touched a weight in their life. Let's look at folks who are, you know, pretty average body fat level and who are actually resistance trained cohorts, people who have been training for a while. And what they found was it, it wasn't really all that rare to identify uh, a group level indication of body recomposition. And that that's a really important detail that people don't highlight enough when they talk about this. People talk about this paper all the time because it's a great paper. It's, it's an important finding. But they were finding group level changes in body composition that reflected recomposition. So at the group average was, you know, an increase in lean mass or fat free mass while weight loss was occurring. And uh, I think that's kind of a huge deal because if you're, if you're finding that, it's not like we're talking about there's like one or two people in the sample who had this anomalous response where they built muscle and lost weight at the same time. We're talking about an, enough of a prevalence of it within these samples that they are actually pulling the entire group average into the range of recomposition, which is a, a much bigger deal than people uh, may may recognize at first glance. So this is not a a totally rare, unique thing. And I think the reason is when you put someone in a study and you say, we're actually going to insist or very strongly uh, encourage you to eat enough protein, to, to be really mindful of your diet. And, you know, maybe you're doing supervised training and you kind of want to show off a little bit. You're in this fancy lab. You want to really hit your workouts hard. People have some gains that are accessible, even if they're kind of intermediate level lifters, some relatively easy gains that are accessible if, if they kind of kick into a higher gear. And so we do see that some of this recomposition happens. Um, so I think that would bring me though to the final factor to keep in mind. And that would be what is the, um, the kind of total magnitude of weight loss that's going to occur, right? So um, most of these studies, they, they were not folks who were losing, uh, who were building muscle while losing 25 kilograms of fat mass, right? It, it was people who were, um, you know, building, you know, gaining maybe a pound or two of muscle, maybe losing three or four pounds of fat, something like that, right? So um, I, I think that when you are someone who is, really highly trained, really advanced, and, and it's it's going to be really tough to make gains. You're someone who probably has to be extra mindful of adhering to those things we talked about previously, which is, you know, 500 calorie per day deficit, or maybe half a percent of body weight per week, protein, the training, all that stuff has to really be optimized. And that, that might be someone, if you're a lean, super advanced lifter, who's trying to retain muscle, and you're trying to get absolutely shredded, in that case, you might even need to go above and beyond with that protein and get it all the way up above 2.75 grams per kilogram of fat-free mass into that 3.1 kind of range. Um, so, so those are kind of the key characteristics to keep in mind. Is you know, if you if you're you know, if you're dieting, for example, for like a bodybuilding show, you're going to be losing. You're probably, hopefully, at least at the very high end of intermediate you know, into the advanced range, if you're prepping for a bodybuilding show, you know that you're probably going to be losing 30 pounds, you know, maybe more, uh, you know, I think 20 to 40 is a pretty common range of how much weight you're losing in prep. You know that the end result is going to be getting shredded, uh, which, which very much plays a role in exacerbating the amount of, of fat-free mass or muscle that's lost. Um, you know, when you're going in with, with that situation, you're probably going to be expecting a loss of lean mass and a loss of muscle mass to some extent. And I think the the case studies that we see on male physique athletes, it, it, it pans out. It bears that out. When we're seeing uh, male athletes 
who are getting all the way down into that five, six, seven percent body fat range, um, really advanced lifters at baseline, losing a bunch of weight on the way down. We're, we're going to be looking at losses in lean mass. So when someone says, hey, I'm doing a bodybuilding prep, uh, how much, you know, how fast can we go without losing a ton of lean mass? I won't say, oh, are you sure we're going to lose lean mass? I'll say, yeah, we're losing lean mass, but but we're going to try to attenuate it. Here's how. But um, but yeah, so, you know, training status, baseline body fat, how much weight are you lo- losing? And by extension, and probably one of the most critical parts, how lean are we trying to get here? You know, if the end goal is going to be for a male sub 10% body fat, we can probably bet that some muscle loss is going to occur. Now, one of the things that's really interesting about that is when you look at analogous case studies. So we've got this male bodybuilding literature that's slowly building. When we look at the the female analogous literature in you know figure uh, categories, uh, bikini categories, we actually don't find nearly as much loss of fat-free mass or lean mass or muscle mass, however you want to frame it. Um, and and I think there's probably a couple things. I, th- I think perhaps some of it is a genuine sex difference, um, you know, w- which could be tied to um, hormonal profiles, maybe. Um, I, I, so I think some of it could be a genuine sex difference. I think some of it could relate to the, the sheer amount of muscle mass at baseline being different. And I think a third factor that's important is um, a lot of the literature so far with uh, male physique athletes is people in the bodybuilding division pushing to get down to like the lowest body fat they, they possibly can. Whereas a lot of the female literature is in some of the less extreme c- competitive categories, you know, still a, a daunting task to get in shape for a bikini or figure show, but, um, but, but not, cate- not um, competitive categories where the judging criteria is necessarily as lean and as muscular as humanly possible. You know, so I, I think that, that those are, are some key distinctions there, but, uh, but yeah, I, I think that that kind of provides a decent summary. And what I do um, to kind of answer the question and kind of tie a bow on it here, someone comes to me and says, how fast can I lose weight without losing muscle? The first thing we do is we look at those characteristics. We say, well, wh- what's the context? What are we really trying to do here? You know, relatively untrained, cutting from 35% body fat to 25 as a male, we're probably going to gain lean mass, you know, so, so we're looking at a totally different question. Um, you know, intermediate lifter trying to go again with male numbers from, you know, 17% to 13% body fat, not, not a ton of weight loss going on there, not getting super shredded intermediate. We, we still probably have gains on the table. We, we could recomp. Absolutely. We could, or maybe we lose a, a very, very modest amount. Um, and then when we look all the way at the other end of the spectrum, Hey, I'm, you know, off season, I kept it pretty tight this off season. I'm starting at maybe 13% body fat, trying to get down to like four, you know, I'm, I, I haven't hit a PR in three years, but I've been training my butt off. Um, in that case, you know, we have to get realistic and say, okay, lean mass is probably part of the, the loss of muscle is probably part of the equation here. And when it comes to what rate we would advise, it basically scales down accordingly as you work down these tiers, you know, someone in that first situation where we expect recomp is very likely as long as we're not in a massive deficit we're still probably going to be able to recomp but but we can probably get away with a relatively quicker rate of weight loss right so for that person i really wouldn't be shy about saying yeah let's go for one percent of body mass per week you know we should be okay in most cases um in the middle there 
that's kind of the most common fitness application, I would say, is going from, you know, kind of lean to kind of leaner for an intermediate lifter. I would say that's where these heuristics, um, the kind of basic ones, I think, really shine. So probably try to keep our, our um, uh, deficit not too much greater than 500 calories per day, probably not losing too much more than half, uh, half a percent of body weight per week. Let's make sure that we're doing our best with protein, you know, two, 2.75 grams per kilogram of fat-free mass. Um, th th that's probably where I would say that's about as fast as we want to go, as about as extreme as we want to get. And we should be able to do everything we can to retain lean mass. So then finally, on that other end of the spectrum, when we're talking about a super advanced, like competitive bodybuilder hasn't made a, you know, hasn't hit a PR in two years, they've been pushing like crazy and they're trying to get absolutely shredded. That's a scenario where we might even go more conservative than some of those basic heuristics. So for example, we might bump that protein from, instead of having a higher limit of 2.75 grams per kilogram of fat-free mass, we might even bump that up to 3.1, especially later in prep when the threat of losing muscle is highest. Uh, we might start that prep with a 500 calorie per day deficit or losing half a percent of body weight per week. But when we get into the later half of that prep, when we're really digging hard and trying to lose those last couple pounds, again, when the risk of muscle loss is elevated, we might go even slower um, just because the threat of muscle loss is so, um, so real and so prevalent in that particular phase of the prep. So uh, all of that is to say when someone says, how fast can I lose weight without losing muscle? Uh, the answer is it's complicated. It's a sliding <laughs> scale. And there's there's factors to consider that the, the answer is actionable, but it's not actually a number, unfortunately. Yeah. I really love the way you framed all of this because and also I think for a lot of people when they think about, oh, how fast can I lose without uh, sorry, how fast can I lose uh, fat without losing muscle? They think of just body fat as the modifier. Like the more you've got, the more you can mobilize for energy. You're in a hormonally better position when you have, well, normally hormonally better position when you've got higher levels of body fat. Training can be good. And as you lose more, scale your rate of loss down. But the other modifier that you've really nicely laid out here is essentially, I guess, boils down to your potential for muscle growth. So like level of advancement and how well are you nailing everything and how long have you been nailing everything and how long, uh, for, for how long. So I think that's, really really cool because you kind of talked through the barricade paper and and i'm sure you've seen this as well as a coach eric where i almost assume everyone who comes and gets coached by me they're going to level up everything and you yeah. kind of see that uh i, I just spoke to um, another researcher and he called it the lab effect like you get training studies and you get people in the lab and people think uh, yeah they're not training that hard but actually when they're in the lab it's some of the hardest training often they've ever done it's kind of like the coaching effect or the supervision effect almost you see within research when you're supervising someone they get better results and so yeah when you bring someone in as a client i'm always like hey we're gonna we're gonna do all right here uh, the only final question i have for you eric is and i'm sure people are thinking about it is one of the modifiers might be length of diet like how long are we going because can we go aggressive for short periods of time this is popular with like protein modified sparing fasts or mini cuts uh does that is that something that you've thought about is it something where people are just trading off an aggressive rate of loss where they may be sacrificing muscle tissue but because it's they're, they're gaining like time because it's so quickly it's done is it just that they regain it and then it's like hey they're in a better position long term maybe or it's just not as bad as it could be if they did it for extended periods of time 
Yeah, my perspective, which um, some of it is based on, you know, I don't have a great paper where I say, see, here's the proof uh, to support my perspective. But my perspective is that length or duration only matters because it necessarily implies something about how lean we're getting or how much total weight we're losing, or it necessarily implies something about our rate of weight loss. So if the length is longer because you're taking more time, then I think that'd be a good thing. If the length is longer because you are losing like 60 pounds and getting absolutely shredded, <laughs> we're, we're probably losing some fat-free mass there. So um, I, I think length matters, but only because of its relationship to the rate of weight loss and then just kind of the overall magnitude of loss and the, the kind of final destination of leanness. Um, but but I, I really loved, if I could go back to something you said previously, um, when people hire you as a coach, you say, yeah, we're going to level things up. I, I find it so... Um, I, I appreciate the irony that a lot of folks who either work with a coach or coach others, they really seem to lean into that perspective that once you've been lifting for like a few years, like you're, you're firmly intermediate and recomping is completely off the table. And I'll be like, so when someone hires you as a coach, do you say like, well, I mean, you've been lifting for four years. What, what could I possibly do to help you? <laughs> you know, or like, you know, like when someone like, well, when you reached out to hire a coach, what did you think they were going to do for you? If your perspective is like you lift for three years and like you're, you're pretty much, you've got what you're going to get. Um, so yeah, I, I think that when you frame it that way, it really exposes the fact that a lot of people believe that um, statement on the surface and they repeat it but they don't act in accordance with it or necessarily believe it when you kind of reframe it in those terms. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the final question, like I said before, I thought it was the final one, but this is the final one, I think, is, is there any signs that you look for with your clients to indicate that, okay, so we've got all the theory here, but is there any like, hey, now we're doing N equals one, yeah, we've got all the science, but what's happening in real time with my client? Is there any signs you look for that indicate, hey, maybe we need to slow things down or maybe we're kind of, we could speed things up even, or yeah, you're going even faster than maybe you think you should be, but everything's indicating things are okay maybe. Yeah, I, th I think that's where client check-ins become important. So if you can look at progress pictures, if you can ask someone, hey, how are your clothes fitting? You know, do you feel like your arms are just swimming in your sleeves? You know, like, you know, you, you kind of get those, those kind of uh, that little bit of feedback about how, how their body's changing, but also how they're feeling, you know, or when, when you start to see that people are experiencing some of those, you know, you I mean, Steve, you've prepped, you know, you, when you're pushing it a little bit too hard, you kind of lose a little bit in your step energy level, super low, uh, more than it should be, right? Uh, your, your workouts are a lot more stale than they should be. Performance in the gym drops. Motivation sometimes can wane a little bit. Um, you kind of keep an eye out for not just the objective metrics like uh, body weight and you know the, the weight they're moving in the gym and RPEs and stuff like that, but you also keep an eye on the subjective stuff. And when someone's really feeling like, hey, we are pushing way too hard, you got to listen to that. And and sometimes you will find that if someone is just absolutely cruising and doing well and everything's going fine, maybe you say, hey, I think, I think we could actually speed this up and we might be able to make this a more efficient process and leverage your motivation and enthusiasm while it's there. I think that's so well stated. It's something I, particularly in the scenarios of people going to stage where they're advanced, you're trying to get very lean. You mentioned contest prep. 
that's where I'm, I always have this chat with clients where I'm like, if there's red flags, tell me because we can intervene, whether that's a refeed, slowing the rate of loss via just reducing the deficit, removing some cardio, because especially training, as you indicated, there is so important for maintaining muscle mass. If that training is taking a real hit, which some people it really does, you can be sure muscle is just ripping off. So yeah, Eric, I think you did a fantastic job of breaking down this question. Uh, I think if someone has the this question come up, you can, we can literally send them this episode. So yeah. thank you so much for being here and taking the time. Yeah, thanks so much. Always, always happy to be on the show. Happy to come back anytime. And if people want to keep up with everything that you're doing, I know you mentioned mass, which we highly recommend people sign up to the mass research review, uh, but also yourself, uh, where should they go? Yeah, I've got a lot going on. I don't know if I mentioned all this last time I was on your show, but uh, I'm a researcher at Duke University now, which is cool. That doesn't help people contact me, but I've had a lot of changes lately. So uh, some of those changes are I'm now on the Iron Culture podcast with Eric Helms and Omar Isoff. So I'm, I'm the third host over there. So you can see my work there. We also started a podcast for the Mass Research Review. It's called Mass Office Hours, and we actually do it live every Wednesday night on YouTube. And then after the fact, we put it up on Spotify, iTunes, all that other stuff. Um, and then if you want to get in contact with me personally, um, the best way to best way to do that would probably be Instagram. My handle is at Trexler Fitness. Excellent. Yeah, I've seen uh, you. I mean, I've listened to some multiple episodes of the Iron Culture podcast, but I need to tune in to some of the uh, office hours because uh, for the mass research review, they're actually for people that aren't subscribed, they can even access those, right? They're not uh, Correct, for yeah. members only. Completely open access. Anyone can access the mass office hours and we frame it like office hours, like with your professors, right? So we, at least a couple members of the mass team, we get on live in YouTube. You can drop questions live in the chat. You can submit them ahead of time. We've got like a little question submission portal. And the whole the whole point is to answer the, the questions that people have about fitness. So needless to say, the question we talked about today has come up many times. And uh, yeah, it, it's a great way to... Uh, you know, I think one of the things that it does is, Steve, you, you probably can relate. Sometimes it's hard to kind of address every question that hits your inbox, you know, and try to keep up with that and give a, a decent, you know, adequate answer to everybody. Um, but this is our way of saying, hey, we might not be able to keep up with every DM and give a really detailed answer to everything, but we can definitely identify the ones we're getting a lot of and and give them the time and attention that they need in podcast format. And it's a fun way to interact with a live audience as well. Yeah. That's awesome. Fantastic. So guys, definitely be sure to check those out. I'll make sure they're linked in the description and we'll catch you soon. Take care. Awesome. Take care. Losing weight fast while maintaining muscle mass. Sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? It isn't though. It's reality and we know how to do it and we will help you achieve this. The Minicup Movement is an eight-week fat loss program to make you lose a huge chunk of fat while maintaining muscle mass at the same time. We will support you from the beginning to the end so that you see the results you would like to and come out of it much stronger. You'll receive a fully automated spreadsheet that is based on your nutritional needs. You can choose between six different male and female training templates. Over 30 videos will guide you through each and every single step of the minicut so that you're getting the most out of your journey and that you always know what to do. But the best thing is that you can start whenever you want. The Minicup movement is open 24-7. So if you want to learn more or you're ready to sign up, hit the link in the description below. So let's revive stronger together.